Welcome to another episode of Off the Dome Radio. We have one of the more interesting interviews we've ever had. Very insightful, a lot of different topics all into one, and it was because of the very unique guest we had. So Dr. Richard McGowan is a philosopher and former business ethics and philosophy professor at Butler University, where me and Colin had him in class for business ethics. Uh, so Doc grew up on the North Shore of Long Island, New York, um, and then went on to earn his bachelor's degree at Colgate University, his master's at Washington State, and his PhD at Marquette University. He's had a variety of different articles published in different newspapers and publications, pub- and, and publications. So we uh, we dive into a variety of topics, including like his childhood, where he grew up, the influence of his father. Um, we talk about the media and its role in today's society, and we get into why the media doesn't really do their full homework on certain topics. Uh, we talk, media was a big topic of it, and how media has changed today versus where it was 30 years ago. So that was an interesting conversation. Slager, what else we get? Yeah, yeah, I like that. And so this man, just to kind of preface, when we both had him in class, it was wasn't about the grade it was about learning a different way of thinking and a higher level of thinking like th- this man it, he blows my mind because he challenged us in the episode which was awesome kind of like we were in class again and there was a point where he caught me in the words that I had previously said and said all right now wait a minute let's let's not go that far yet and, and he's just very good at, at how he communicates and the way he says things mm-hmm. and He's got this level of thinking where it's addicting because it's it's a refreshing conversation in the sense that most people aren't having these. And that's also something we talk about is where no longer can people have conversations with one another anymore. And uh, it, it, was, it was just very enlightening and it's always awesome, yes, to catch up with people. But Doc is just, he's, he's a unique guy, man. It, it's, it's fun to hang around him even when the mics are off. Uh, we ended up having chili with him, watching some ball, and, and that was just a good time. And we uh, we all said we need to get together again outside of uh, the mic in the studio and 100% agreed. But one thing that, that we kind of ended on was our own uh, thing. He asked us who we want to be more, more like and, and emulate, and those answers are pretty interesting. And we talked about within your communication, uh, uh, your desired outcome. What is the desired outcome going into whatever conversation, confrontation, argument, debate that you're going into? Is it to hate the person at the end or understand the person? So I loved this episode. Uh, I'm going to listen to this a bunch because this was mm-hmm. this was a good time. He, he asked a lot of good questions of us. Yes. Like it was, oh, it was incredible. The, it was the, probably the most two-way interview we've had or one of the most two-way interviews just because he put us back on our feet and asked why on certain things that we thought about. And yeah. it was a really insightful interview. I enjoyed it. There, there, yeah, there's even a point where I started laughing because I gave an answer and he goes, so why do you think that? Yeah. And, and I gave another answer and in my mind I was like, All right, that was a pretty solid answer. Yeah, I think that I got that one. He goes, so why do you think that? So why do you think? And, and then I was like, yeah. I started laughing. I was like, oh man, it's like I'm back in class, but that's good. I loved that because like you said, definitely, definitely our our most two-way conversation Mm -hmm. it was good and yeah loved it so hope you guys enjoy here we are with doc and gallon
So, Doc, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. How, uh, how have you been? I haven't seen you since school. Yeah, I've been all right. I'm yeah. getting old. That's oh, all. stop. Um, so are you still teaching now? Are you done teaching? I have retired. Okay. I've been retired for about, um, the way we academics do it is almost four semesters now. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, I've been enjoying it pretty well. I, I, I miss the students, but... Um, I don't miss the committee work. <laughs> <laughs> and Doc, I, I had you in class at, at Butler University, I think either my sophomore or junior year, I can't remember. But can you just explain a little bit what, like what you taught in, in school, um, just your, your professor background, like I guess your professional background as well, just kind of your path along in academia up until you retired, I guess, if you want to go into that. Do you want academia or do you want everything? Give us everything. Let's get everything. Open mics. Okay, well, it's like in Seinfeld. More anything, more everything. Well, I, I was a very lousy student when I went away to school in upstate New York, a really premier, very good liberal arts school, Colgate University. And I think I graduated with a 234. Mm -hmm. So that's a C plus after having done very, very well in high school. So it was a disappointment to me. It's probably my biggest, one of my bigger regrets in life. And... Um, from there, I wound up becoming a building supervisor, and I used to build houses on Long Island. Um, the number one reason that people leave their jobs is because they don't like their boss. Mm. Um, and the reason I know that is because Mean Borobund from, I believe it was Indonesia, she wrote a paper on it. It was a great paper. It was terrific. In fact, I, I sent it out to the class. I said, hey, you know, this is what I think. And so she wrote a paper just because she wanted to know there was no more required writing. And she had already turned in all the writing for the semester. And I said, oh, the heck with that. I'm taking this paper and I'm using this for grading. Because <laughs> uh, she did such a good job. So then I was out west and I was a uh, forklift operator and a bartender. And then I went back to school in the mid-20s, 25-ish, 26. I went to Washington State University. I like learning. It satisfied me to get a master's degree. I met Barbara there, my wife. So that was good. And then we came to Milwaukee because uh, I could get a teaching assistantship at Marquette University, and that's where my PhD is from. So BA, Colgate, MA, Washington State, PhD, Marquette. Great. So. Wow. And I thought I wanted, I wanted to teach because I wanted to be with young people. I wanted to be... Uh, to, I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't want to be a researcher, but mm -hmm. I've done some writing now. Mm -hmm. So, when did you? At what point in your life did you know that you wanted to teach the younger? Actually, I, it was probably pretty early on. Probably the, my teenage years, because I wanted to be a teacher because I wanted to have more time with my family. Mm, okay. Um, I didn't mind being rich and working really, really hard, really, really hard, but I did want to be wealthy because wealth comes in many forms. Mm -hmm. And one of them is being with my family. I want to be with my children. I want to be with my wife. And, and teaching was the best thing. And not teaching in high school, teaching in college. Because college, you'll work as many hours, maybe more, but they're unstructured hours. So I could pick and choose my time and be with the kids mm -hmm. in the other time. Yeah. Great papers late at night when they're in bed. So that, that's sort of what I decided. 
Um, I decided that after I wasn't going to become a baseball player. <laughs> it was apparent. I mean, I'd rather have been a baseball player, honestly. Yeah. So. I was going to be in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. I got time, right? You know? yeah. Well, you know, the growth hormones, they didn't probably, I don't know how soon you could have gotten them ages ago, but. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm that lucky, though. Yeah. Genetically, I'm not as blessed. I'm not my dad's height. He's, he's got the height, so. I'm the runt of my family. Five boys, three girls, and I'm the, I'm the runt of the boys. Wow. So five boys and three girls. How, how was that growing up? It was actually kind of fun. Actually, my, and my brother and I are Irish twins. Okay. So I, he was born in October, and the very next calendar year, I was born in September. So that's within a 12-month period. They are Irish twins. Oh. And uh, so it was like having a friend in the house. We played all the time. We yeah. did all sorts of things. It was uh, raucous, absolutely raucous, <laughs> and good fun. Good. And then as the kids got older, the younger kids, we were the two oldest. And so as the, as the young ones were growing up, we would be playing with them and helping them and coaching them and doing whatever. So oh, it was awesome. just great. It was really yeah. great. That's good. I, remember I used to fight with my brother a lot. A yeah, lot. Was a little yeah. bit of that, it teaches you competitiveness growing in a family like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I grew up in a big family. We played a lot of sports. And yeah. Sport, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's probably we got your love for baseball, right? Yeah. 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 My dad was quite an athlete. I think he should have been a professional. He could have been a professional baseball player, I think. I think he could have been a professional basketball player. He led uh, Queens College in scoring one year. So he was mm-hmm. playing in New York City. Um, he could have probably been a professional boxer, but uh, instead he was a professional soldier. He was World War II, mm-hmm. and that took all those years out of, out of his life. And then, and then, it, and then it was that was that. And yeah. then you raise a family. You get serious about life. I mean, you don't start there. Uh, so baseball players, they if they could get on, then they'd be drafted and they'd go back. Uh, but if you never got on, that was you know he was yeah. ar- early in, man. So anyway, but yeah, it was great. It was terrific. Good. being with all those people yeah yeah well, that's funny cause, and then you're giving me the tour of the house and you said you forced your boys to sleep in the same room so they learned how to get along yeah i think my brother and i could have used a little bit of that early on <laughs> yeah, but it, it's it was barb and i made a lot of decisions together about the boys and the children and that was one that we really liked because mm. then they talked to each other at night oh i'm so angry at dad well you know i know what you mean but think about it this way you know so they would talk about Mm. Us. <laughs> yeah. They would talk about whatever it was. And uh, there was an age difference, a spread of five years or so. Okay. But they still all lived in the same room. And then Tyler, of course, the youngest, and he'd listen to his brothers because they were doing most of the talking. And and uh, he would learn about life. Yeah. So. That's cool. That's it's funny you said they'd talk even if it was about you guys. My parents yeah. said, well, we, when the house goes quiet, then we know we're in trouble because you two are ganging up against us. And like, Mm -hmm. we want that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's when some authoritative figure, maybe a a pledge educator or someone, makes everyone else mad at them, but they're collectively angry. Right, 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 right. And then they bond over it. And then you go back and you kind of reverse it. Like, okay, now let's go a little less, teach a little more friend to where you can reach out to me even as your authoritative figure. But now you're all better for it because I was hard first. Right, right. Uh, Two things... First off, um, since I taught philosophy at Butler for years and years, and uh, it was mostly ethics, but I mean, I know enough about all the other disciplines or the other areas of philosophy. Sartre said, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, famous French existentialist, who was part of the French underground in the resistance movement against 
against the Germans, against the Nazis. He said that the way you get relationships, bonding, is you have a common enemy, you know, conflict. Mm. So he thinks that there's a conflict model of relationships. Mm. Now, I think Sartre is wrong, but it's an interesting understanding of the dynamic, you know, of yeah. relationship. Um, and um, anyway, so we'll leave it there. Okay, well, I was going to ask what you, you think is wrong. What is your alternative? What do you think might be able to be changed or done better? You know, gosh darn it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it. I know, I know. <laughs> I really don't like a lot of the um, treatment of diversity. When I was growing up, my best friends were black, people of color these days. Actually, in those days, they were called Negroes, so that gives you an idea of how old I am. And they were Puerto Rican. They were everything. Mm -hmm. They were so different. But the one thing that they all were was poor and desperate. And uh, so you just learn to get along with them. And you realize that there's another being like yourself. Whatever the difference, whatever the differences are, there's more in common. And, and that's the way I grew up. So Martin Luther King Jr. comes along, and he, this is uh, just like listening to poetry for me. I mean, because that's the way I was taught. That's the way I was raised. Mm -hmm. My godfather, Brother Joseph, may he rest in peace. Uh, I was sitting on his lap, and, and I said, and my mom came up, and she said, it's dinner time, boys. And uh, or my, actually, it was my dad. And my dad came up, and he said, time for dinner. And I said, Brother Joseph, you better wash your hands. And my dad and Brother Joseph looked at each other, and they were howling. And my dad said, but that's, that's just the color of his skin. That's just the color of his hands. And I went, oh. And that was the end of the lessons on racism. Huh. That's it. That just was like it. that. Yeah. And, and uh, so I don't like a lot of the, um, the way, we're, the way we, we separate. There's a dynamic of separation when you talk about differences first and sameness second. Mm. And... Uh, so when I meet somebody, they're another human being like me. They're another person with the same desires and another person with the same struggles. And, and so it, would, it seems to me we can bond before we have antagonism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but and, and that's interesting because Tim knows I'm reading a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff by Dr. Richard Carlson. And one of the lessons in there was smile at people like strangers that you mm -hmm. don't know in passing mm -hmm. or maybe it's the store wherever it may be and it's it's because when you smile at them and look at them as a person with likes dislikes maybe a family maybe not maybe a girlfriend boyfriend yeah they they do similar things that we do why are we so much more above that we can't offer that yeah so yeah. that's funny you bring that up where it's just that was the end of the lesson just another human being right Right, right, right. Ready to eat some dinner. But, of course, I was playing basketball with those kids. They were my first friends, really. I mean, we did everything together. Yeah. They called my father coach because he coached, He was the athletic director. Okay. So I, I come naturally to athletics and mm -hmm. um, all the sports. And they called him coach, and I got on the teams, and, I, I, and I'd, go visit, I'd go with my dad. He was a lifeguard. He'd take care of the kids down the beach with all the other people, and and they called him coach, and I started calling him coach. And I didn't, I didn't call him dad until I was in my 20s. 
<laughs> he was coach. Yeah. So I was like, Cause that's what my friends called him. Yeah. So and one of my friends from back then, just a real, I have to to be honest, a passing acquaintance. Uh, he knew me as coach's son, and I I knew him, you know, by sight. But down the line, he became Uncle Ray to the children. He's still mm. Uncle Ray to the children. Mm. But he grew up in the mean streets of New York. And when I say mean streets, uh, he and his brother saw their mom starting to drink at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He grew up in Brooklyn. And they said, uh-oh. So they immediately shut their bedroom door, shoved all the furniture against it, because they knew she was going to beat them. Mm. Went down to the park, came back after it was dark, peeked through the front window, saw that she was passed out, and then went in the house. Again, through the bathroom so they could, the, the bedroom yeah. door, sorry, the bedroom door so they could yeah. undo the furniture. Uh, but that, that's the mean streets. And so they, those were the people who were um, with my dad. And uh, they respected my dad real well. So, so those, I mean, so it's, so I'm kind of an atypical person. Although Cotter, Gabe, Gabe Kaplan, welcome back, Cotter. Okay. Go on YouTube. Just, all right. Just type in welcome <laughs> okay. back, Cotter. Okay. Anyway, Gabe Kaplan was the star of that show. And uh, he and I had lunch together. I did some charity work, and so he wound up being there. That was when I was getting older because I kept on putting my left ear into the into the conversation. He kept on putting his right ear into the conversation, so I knew he was getting deaf too. And so we were both losing our hearing. But he said, well, when I was growing up, those were all the kids in my class. If you take a look at the sweat hogs, yeah, we had a black, we had a Jew, we had... And we were the losers, though. But we were the losers. But we were together because we were to, we were together. This was this was the gang that I was part of, and that's what that show was modeled on. So he grew up with diversity too, mm. but again, he grew up poor and, and in some ways neglected. But he did something with his life. Yeah. Wow. So. Yeah, and it's amazing, like growing up with your father having that type of leadership role in your life mm -hmm. and for the friends around you who you grew up with. Like that's mm -hmm. like a special a special bond that and you were raised the right way because of that, it sounds yeah. like. And it sounds like you learned a lot from your dad and raised the right way. And you get what would you say, I mean obviously you guys played sports together, recreation. Was that kind of the commonality you found within your friends? Is just the recreation aspect of everything or what what do you because you I you talked about find what's common first, find what, I mean, and the diversity second. What, yeah. what was the main thing that you and your friends had, had in common, would you say, when you, well, when you look back at it? It's really hard to say. We did an awful lot. We lived in a kind of idyllic environment mm -hmm. on the North Shore of Long Island. Mm -hmm. um, no, no one of my friends grew up with salt water no more than a half a mile from their house. Mm. So a lot of beach activities, swimming, diving, boating. Um, there was a field that was in this environment, and everybody went down to the field to play. It was either football or it was baseball. And uh, so sports were a big commonality. And then at night we would hang out. And I suspect that hanging out was the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. We just hang out at night and just talk. Yeah. We spent more time doing that than I think anything else. Yeah. So. A lot of memorable conversations, I'm sure. Yeah, they mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. They were. Uh, but. When I was a little flower, I was with people who, um, who were destitute. But when, what I was just talking about, with a lot of my friends, it was this very, very wealthy neighborhood that I didn't fit into. 
That's one of the reasons I think I didn't do well in my undergraduate life, because and, and I mean it, I, I really did a lousy job. But but, um, but it probably made me a better teacher because I knew I knew all the things that the kids were going to do. Yeah. Right. I mean, I did it. So make your own mistake. Mm-hmm. Don't don't do what I did. And um, I grew up with such a wealthy neighborhood. My next door neighbor, you walk through the shrubs and there he is, and he had two sons, uh, my brother's age and my age, and we played with them all the time. He was the lawyer who represented the mission that landed on the moon. So he represented the astronauts. He had a picture of the moon and he had a moon rock in his house. And we're living next door. <laughs> it was a hovel. It was a big house, but it was so dilapidated and run down. We didn't have we didn't have heat on the third floor. My brother Bill and I. We had a big family, right? So we had eight kids. So we we lived on the third floor. And it was so cold one morning when I went up to when I got out of the bed in the morning to use the bathroom, there was a little sheen of ice on the toilet. Jeez. Right on the <laughs> toilet water. And so and so we're living we're living like we're living. And, and here's this guy right there who's really a, a, a wild success, but a really good guy. I mean, just a mm-hmm. real gentle and a good man. Mr. Mm-hmm. McChrystal, I will name him Mr. McChrystal. He was just a good guy. His wife was a great gal. Mm-hmm. His sons were wonderful. Mm-hmm. So um, not everybody was wonderful, but, but he, was, he was terrific. Mm-hmm. You know? And so uh, as uh, the Butler degree holder, Archbishop Desmond Tutu would say, I have rich friends and I have poor friends. And it's how you treat others. Mm-hmm. It's fairly simple. Yeah. Right? And so, so even the class divide that I see so much of, I grew up with rich friends and I grew up with poor friends. So, I mean, I, ha- I had kind of an interesting background. Mm-hmm. So. But people are always going to remember the way they were treated by that person when that person was gone. It's like people remember like, wow, they treated me really, really well. Or if like, man, they treated, treated me like dirt. Because you know? uh, yeah. my, my, my dad, he's the one who, who wants to leave the world a better place than he found it. But he's like, people will remember when you're there for them and not and how you treat them. So hearing that, you had, you know, you had friends with um, on the mean streets or people who weren't as pleasant, but then you had the other side. It was like, yeah. Mr. McChrystal was a really good, good human with a good wife too. So it's right. it's fun when you hear that side because I don't think we see or shed light on the good things as much these days, whether it's news or social media. And you see, it's like we're addicted to the conflict, the negative, almost. So it's it's nice to hear when there's the opposite. So why happens. do you suppose that is? Aside from the the shallow response of headlines, uh, I I think. People like to create dramas for whatever reason. I, I think somehow we, we want something to, to go wrong or be, be upset by. Like we almost want that person to cut us off on the road. We want to yell and be like, oh, that's son of, you know, you cut me off. Okay, so why do you think that is? Oh, here we go. This is why I love this. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. That's the yeah. interesting thing. I think you're right. I, I, I think. I think a lot of it would do with that person's own insecurities, with whatever or or their own upbringing, what they know from past experiences. I think we refer to what we know via what we've gone through and and experienced. But I think there's insecurities where I know I personally used to have some road rage 
And then I changed certain areas of my life, whether it was career, personal. Uh, maybe I started reading more, just learning more what I wanted to do. And I was calmer. And like now, if someone cuts me off, I'm like, come on, just be better. Be a little bit better. It's not I get so aggravated or angry and then it, you know, some people, they get cut off on the way to work. It ruins their entire day. It's like you're going to let someone who just moved over too soon on the road ruin a day. But I think there's maybe insecurities driving some of that too to where it's why are you so aggravated by that person and what they did? Why aren't you more worried about what you're doing and why aren't you okay with that? All of this sounds smart to me. Where did you grow up? Northwest Indiana. Yeah, well, I grew up in New York. <laughs> and, and I understand Rome rage. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure. And, and my wife, who grew up in Wisconsin, Barbara, I, I'll refer to her now as Barbara. Um, I used to only refer to her as my wife when she disagreed with me. Uh, but I'll, 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 I'll refer to her as Barbara. <laughs> and, and, and I think she's correct. I, sh- I think that I still have some that aggressive New York driving attitude. And it is very aggressive. You're near a big city. It's, it's just, and what's at stake? Nothing's at stake. Yeah. Really, there's nothing at stake. What are you talking about, five seconds? Yeah. You're talking about five seconds of your time? Yeah. So. To ruin an entire day. I, I listened to someone recently, Hal Elrod. He uh, had a few near-death uh, experiences. And one, he was like, you can be upset for five minutes. He goes, I learned to give myself five minutes. After that, you can't change it. Like, you get five minutes of, of your own, you know, sulk, be mad, whatever it is. After that, you're done. You have to be because it's over. So since you, you asked me to do this, I want mm-hmm. two things. One, this podcast is new to me. Okay. Uh, but knowing you and Tim, Colin, since I'm looking at you, uh-huh. uh, it, it, uh, you, you did a nice job of allaying whatever the newness might feel like. And... Um, too, I think it's natural to be to be uncomfortable with with newness, mm-hmm. and so and so I, I, you you try to check the road rage though. Yeah, I mean uh, sometimes it creeps in. Depends how bad it is, <laughs> but yeah, it, it is better. But yeah, I, I think there's stuff internally for that person who is so angry that they need to work out, and they might not want to accept it or hear it because it's it's hard to say and accept. But yeah, there's something else going on. So, yeah. so here I am. This professor will tell you that Somerset Maugham, chapter 17 of Human Bondage, the book of Human Bondage, says you can't change the past, which just goes to show the futility of regret. Mm-hmm. And anger is a regret response. Wow. So, I mean, that's, not, that's pretty good advice, but <laughs> it's hard to integrate. Um, think about the Irish. They're still fighting the 1600s, you know, the stuff in the 1600s, you know, they're just not going to leave the past behind. And, and you really sometimes just have to let it go. Yeah. I'm not good at it. <laughs> hey. so. We're all a work in progress. Yeah. At the end of the day, if someone cuts me off, because I, I mean, everyone had that road rage at some point. I kind of like, I step back and just put myself in their shoes and be like, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to get to where we want to go in the most efficient time possible. Everyone's trying to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, and look at the similarities between me and the person who cuts me off. I think that goes back to, like, people want to take sides on something, be divisive. Like, I ask myself, like, why why are people at conflict about something? I just – I want to get your guys' opinions as to why we had that in the first place, why we had to divide on certain stuff. Um, but I think at the end of the day, 
people just like to identify people identify their personality traits and take a position on something and that's how they identify themselves on something i think that's why we have it in the first place but i also like to look at it like we're all trying to reach some type of common goal but i think we just lose sight of that sometimes but that's just my take on it so so divide uh anything specific like scenario wise like a certain divide with people on one thing or the other just so i have a little reference i mean I, I can I can go to some of these articles I guess I can talk I mean you talk about the Kaepernick thing just taking the the police police brutality side like put like this person against this person this against that I don't know I just want to get open discussion on that as to like what you guys thought about that or what you guys think about that concept in general but. what I I think people look for division mm-hmm. and I think we're trained to look for division I think part of it comes from uh, a beautiful analysis by Shelby Steele thank goodness, a black thinker or thinker of color. And, um, and he said that, that we, we're, we're teaching victims, we're, we're teaching people to be victims. And when you're a victim, you expect others to respond to you. Um, and you expect a certain amount of debt is owed. And I got to say, I, I mean, growing up poor and being Irish and not knowing German because my mother was born in Germany, <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I haven't been here long enough <laughs> to, to, to victimize. I haven't. I didn't get the privileges, so-called, of, of being white. Mm-hmm. Um, so now there'll be people who will argue with that, and that's fine. Let's 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 discuss. But I think we're ratcheting up the hatred. We're listening to the language of hatred. Tip O'Neill and Reagan, President Reagan, used to talk all the time. They used to, they used to sit down to dinner together. They would joke and laugh. Where did that go? I don't know. Where did that go? But 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 I'm an old man. That's the way I grew up. This is what I expect. Mm-hmm. I don't expect people will hear ideas, and then get angry at the person. I just had a letter that was printed in the Wall Street Journal. I'll show it to you later. Okay. I, I didn't send that over, mm-hmm. and because uh, Villanova, the professors at Villanova are now being evaluated by students on their uh, inclusivity and sensitivity, or their diversity and sensitivity. But what, however it was phrased, the students now pass judgment on that. Wow. All right, so now teach ethics. And this is basically what the letter said. Uh, so if, if, you, if, as I did 10 years ago, say, look, gay marriage is an open question. I, I had a gay student and he just thought I was a homophobe and called me names. And my conservative students thought, open question, what a fool. Now I'm going to be evaluated by both of those students. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and at one time, you know, as you well know, since you both had me for class, mm-hmm. the very first question on every single test for about the last 15, 20 years is affirmative action is morally justified, true or false. And the way I handled that, if you were there the next, I don't know if you cut class, but if you were there when the test came Couldn't back. Couldn't afford to. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That's why you're uh, there. Yeah, right. If, if you were, so, so then you heard me say, all right, by a show of hands, put up your hands if you answer true. So a lot of hands went up. Mm-hmm. Put up your hand, and I said, and I said, look around, look around the room. And so they looked around the room, they saw the hands. I said, how many of you wrote false? And a lot of hands went up. I said, look around the room, look around. And then I said, how many of you got it marked wrong? 
Look around the room. Put your hands up. Look around the room. And nobody's hand went up. Because on an open question, we have to let things go and listen to the arguments and see where reason is going to lead us. One unfortunate student did not come to class that day when I gave the test back. She didn't think I could grade them in a day, but I did. And I got back the very next day. And then she went and got her test. The second day, we met, got the test back, went over them. We did a review. I talked about why I put that in there, so that you have the courage of your conviction, to show what an open question is. And she saw that what she had written, false, was accepted as a correct answer. And she went to the dean and said, Professor McGowan is a racist. That really happened. Yes, that's wow. that's and that was that, she wasn't there the day class to understand that. Wow. And that's why that and that's why you don't include that question. Because students don't always see. And inclusivity and, and um, sensitivity doesn't mean you can't disagree about something that involves race or sex or what other unalterable characteristic might be involved. And so anyway. Yeah, and, and we've talked before that nowadays you can't even have a conversation. You have a label yeah. automatically. Yeah. Whether it's uh, politically, re religiously, it's identity, everything. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure where we got lost there, but like that's prime example. It's like she, she wasn't there for the conversation. Did right. she also tell the dean, oh, I skipped class beforehand? Yeah, you know? It's like, okay, he's a racist, but... You didn't miss everything that you just you yeah. skipped. So yeah. you skipped your class. Like the dean should know that first before hearing that someone's a racist. It's you hear or give what you want to give. Well, I had I had to have a sit down with the dean. As you know, I got called in, and Boy. we had a sit down. I told him how I handled that whole situation. Mm -hmm. He was how I got another one of those situations where he he was just laughing. He knew exactly what I was doing. Yeah, he thought it was an what a great move. What a great move. Yeah. Anyway, so now you see where we get all of this divisiveness from. This gal wasn't there at the next class. It comes out of ignorance. Yeah. It comes out of ignorance and not knowing that we have to extend goodwill and trust to others. Yeah. I mean, you don't start, you start this is a being like myself. So mm -hmm. I think the other thing that drives us, and I, and I since I knew we wanted to, you wanted to get here, you, we talked before we, in case you don't know, folks, they talk sometimes to soften up whoever it is that they talk to. And, uh, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> who knew? <laughs> we just like yeah, it. Yeah, one of the things was, uh, Colin figured it out that I, I have it in for the media frequently, have it in for the media. <laughs> mm -hmm. And here's why. Um, and I've had it in f for two reasons. One, uh, I had a friend named Dave, uh, may he, Dave uh, Osterfeld, may he rest in peace. Uh, and he I made some comment, and he said, Dick, did you, did you do the investigation? And I said, no, I did. But, but you read about it in the newspaper, and he just smiled at me. And uh, another time, I was teaching class at Marquette years and years ago in the 70s, and I, I read something in the paper. Reggie, Reggie Jackson, fame, Hall of Famer, mm -hmm. and Mickey Rivers, the center fielder for the New York Yankees, they got in a fist fight in the fifth inning during a game. I couldn't believe it. And so I said to the class, I wasn't a Reggie Jackson fan. And the reason I wasn't was because he would rate women. He'd look at a woman and say, five. 
you know, so treating women mm. more like objects. I'm just not a fan of that. And, uh, and I thought, that's all right. We'll stop there. Because one of my friends who used to play baseball told me a, a story about Reggie Jackson, and if you want that, down the line. Um, and so this one gal raised her hand. And I, I said, Reggie Jackson, such an idiot. And she raised her hand, and she said, that's not like how it was. That was, that was just, they just raised their voices. They disagreed about something. And I'm thinking in the front of the classroom, whippersnapper. What do you know? But but being open, you, you want to say, which I did say, well, how do you know? And she said, well, my father is Bill White. And to you, it doesn't mean anything. But to me, it meant the world. He was the New York Yankee broadcaster. Oh. He played, in ba he wow. played Major League Baseball for 17 years. Wow. He became the American League president. <laughs> right? <laughs> she knew. She knew. Re she knew. Yeah. I pretty did. Valid <laughs> pretty, pretty valid research on her. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I decided, you know, I'm, if I can find something out on my own, I'm going to find it out on my own. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so that sort of drives me. And I, I, I don't want to go into an argument or go, in, go, into, a, go into a conflict without trying to understand the other person's position. So you try to research the other person's position. And there might be three or four or five positions on something. Abortion's mm -hmm. got about eight important positions. And you just try to find out about them. And you look at the arguments. And you, and you look at the information. And I think people are a little bit lazy. They want yeah. things handed to them. Oh, so. for sure. And you see that in a lot of the, the stances that are taken in the media. Yeah, they, they're yeah. not doing their homework. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no reason why a story about one of my pet peeves, since I raised three boys, and I dropped out to raise the kids. And um, I was the principal caregiver as soon as Cassidy was born, 1982. I took three years off when we were about 60, 40, Barbara taking care of them and me being the 40. Uh, but then after that, in 1992, when I dropped out of my career to raise the boys, it wound up being uh, more like 70-30 or 80-20. Uh, so, I, so I worry about men's issues. How can you have an article about suicide and not mention that boys kill themselves 78% of the times compared to gals? I mean, how can you leave that out? How can you leave that statistic out? Uh, you do your homework and you find out, well, gee, women worry about, and this is true, women worry about suicide more, and I'm sorry about that, and I'm sorry that they're depressed a lot, too. And, but, and that, that, those are real conditions that need, need attention. But golly, if, if three out of four who kill themselves are men, we got to worry about men. Mm -hmm. and, and right now, I grew up in a period of time where there was only one sex that people needed to worry about, and that was men. I didn't like it then. And I don't like it now. And so we need data. We need, we need to explore. And I think the media is so hard-pressed, partly financially, to set aside time to get the information. Although it took me, I will tell you, it took me five minutes to get that information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they have five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> when the New York Times reported on uh, the issues in St. Louis with all the Jewish headstones um, being knocked over, they did, it, they did indeed address it accurately. They said there are 664 incidents of hate crimes against Jews last year. What they didn't say was, that was the most hate crimes against any religion. That's what they did not say. Hmm. Because the narrative, the story, and we want story, not fact, the story is Muslims are put upon, uh, but Muslims are, 
are, Jews are put upon about two and a half times more than Muslims, taking population numbers into account. So uh, after that, by the way, it's Christianity. Mm. Wow. Actually, actually, after that, it's, it's, it's Catholicism. And then after that, it's Protestants. Uh, but then if you start lumping all the Christians together, then for sure all of it is going to be third. Sure. So for what that's worth. So, I mean, those are the things that I do with my spare time. I'm retired. I have a lot of time to do this. <laughs> so these days. But I did it for my classes because I wanted, to, I wanted my students to, I wanted to be a model for my students and to see what was possible about getting to understand the real world, mm-hmm. not as people hand it to us. Yeah. Because yeah, you talk about laziness. I mean, that drives away from laziness. Because you have laziness on both sides. You have it from the person who's writing the article the laziness of not doing their homework. But yes. then you also have the laziness of the person who's consuming the media. Yeah. Like, don't yeah, get yeah. it from different sources. Like, they can still be lazy all they want, but you as the reader don't have to follow their, their steps. Yeah. You, you can go yeah. and read from somewhere else and get another viewpoint from yeah, someone. Yeah. So. In fact, I was, just on, um, I was just on the media today, and I, uh, everybody's worried about heart disease in women. I think that's good. I think women, should, we should worry about. They present differently. Um, they, they don't show the same symptoms and anyway the rate for 100,000 I think for men it was a 200 number and for women it was just below 150 and so more men die of heart disease but that's not what the news account that I read today on the internet said so if you pull up Bing you know they're going to have all the news the Mm -hmm. internet news and I read all about the heart disease in women I I said well gosh you know we should worry about that but which is the more afflicted sex. And the same thing for bulimia. You, you really want to worry about women. It, it's prevalent in women, bulimia and uh, anorexia. And you, so you really want to try to focus on that group because that's where you're gonna, the research is going to do the most good. Mm-hmm. So, and, but it's, these things are not hard to get. Now I, I know I'm a little bit more upper crust in terms of uh, gathering data and doing research, but still, you type in, all you have to do is type in uh, fatalities by heart disease. There it is. Mm-hmm. You know, data on heart disease, data on morbidity of heart disease. I mean, there are different ways you can approach this, and everybody's got that capability. Mm-hmm. That's the optimist in me speaking, by the way. Yeah. yeah. The angel on my shoulder says that. You know, we, can, we are all capable of doing this. I think yeah. we are. Especially in today's times when you can get an answer to something by typing your keyboard for a couple minutes. And I just like compare that to when the internet wasn't live. Like, what was consuming of media like? before like the internet came about like where people had to do even more work to get the right research yeah it couldn't be done you had to really trust the media you really really had to trust the people who were doing the journalist and Uh journalists had higher standards far fire far far higher standards Uh um and they picked and choose what went in Uh, Uh a couple of two stories i babe this one gal came running through a train back when the New York Yankees had to travel from stadium to stadium by train. And she had a towel across her chest. And the story goes, Babe Ruth came running in right after that, stark naked. (laughs) (laughs) And the sports writers were sitting there playing cards. And one said, well, I'm glad I didn't see that. (laughs) 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 And, And one of the other people who were playing cards said, yeah, me too. And one of my friends, um, Frank Thomas, uh, who played in the major leagues for the about big six, hurt. sixteen. Mm-hmm. No, not the big hurt. The original Frank. Oh, Thomas. the original. He signs every letter. Okay. Frank Thomas, nineteen fifty-three to sixty-seven, the original one. 
And uh, he was the first guy in Major League Baseball history to hit the fourth home run in a row. Okay. So it was, it was Aaron Matthews, Adcock, Frank Thomas. Huh. And the Braves were so lousy that they still lost the game. Jeez. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, the sports writers used to be your friend. Uh, but over the years, it's evolved. Now they want to make the story. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about it with Pete Rose and uh, some of the reporting that went on with, with him gambling and not being in the Hall of Fame and uh, the way he was treated by Major League Baseball. And he, he made those kinds of comments. I mean, so, so now the sports writers are they're looking for an edge. You read stuff by Red Smith, who, by the way, grew up right near my son's house in, in Green Bay. There's a Red Smith Park famous baseball writer. And you could see he loved the people he was covering. They loved him. And he was careful. He wouldn't not tell the truth, but he wouldn't be aggressive in delivering it if it was something negative. Mm-hmm. And he, he might conclude so-and-so could have been a great player if he'd only left the bottle aside. You know what I mean? And that's, and that's, that's, that was gentle. Yeah. It was nice. It was so yeah. civilized in so many ways. We all have our faults. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of forgiveness in our society, right? So I'm I'm curious on your thoughts on how we get back to people finding the truth. And one of the articles you sent us it, <laughs> with the with the media is they don't. Why are they so pressed to not tell the entire truth? And I had one tell me as a coach years ago. There's your side, their side, and the truth. There's three sides to every story. So. How do we get back to having a conversation and people, oh, young people are going to lead the way. I hope not um, because we, we don't talk about things. It's it's a call-out culture. It's, um, oh, let's protest against this. I don't agree with them, so let's, let's boycott that just because you don't like what they say or do. So uh, do you have thoughts on how maybe we start to try to do that more on – we need to just have a conversation. Like, I know everyone is so focused on what Trump says. And not that I'm a crazy fan of his or a lot of, a lot of presidents, but like, what did he say? Yeah, but what's he doing? And what's the difference? Mm-hmm. There? What are you being told and what are you seeing done? And no one looks at what's actually being done rather than they want to see the narrative and, and believe the poor narrative without having the homework or both sides or all three sides because that's why I follow I follow left of center, right of center, and right in the middle. Yeah. Because yeah. then I see what are the extremes, who's logical, and I wanna I follow logic. What what seem what makes the most sense? Yeah. Um so yeah, I'm kinda curious what you think on, on how we try to get back there if if you think we can. Well if well we have to. I mean, it's not <clears throat> if we can. We have to. So uh, first off, don't be so negative on young people. Okay. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, Fair. So here I am talking to two pretty swell young people. Appreciate that. And it's one of the reasons why I miss students. So Fair enough. Said, don't sell yourself short or, or sell young people short. Uh, I think that we have to start looking for more commonality, but we're doing that. If you listen to Peter Farrelly, who won the Director Award for The Green Room, 
The Green Book. The Green Book. I've he wasn't him. Good. He got the Golden Globe Director's Award. Okay. He says, look, we're all the same. We all want the same stuff. So more people in public have to do that. Okay. Now, what I've done is I, I taught ethics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I taught it for X amount of years. Sure. I didn't. I sort of st styled myself after Plato's Socrates. I sort of said, well, if the culture's a little bit out of whack, it needs to be fixed. And so back in the 70s, it needed to be fixed. We needed to get equality. We need to have people treated equally. We needed to make sure that blacks could get ahead, people of color, Negroes. The language has shifted in my lifetime several times. And we need to get women a place at the table. And we need, we need, we need. Uh, but on the other hand, we can't forget. We can't forget about others. We can't forget about the boys we're losing. We're losing black boys like crazy. It, 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 it hurts me. It hurts me. Mm -hmm. Because uh, my friends, they were black, they were white. I'm losing my black friends. I'm losing my the black boys. It drives me nuts. All the way back in the 90s, you, you could see it in the 90s. You could see the patterns. And uh, I was arguing and, and talking about that then. Um, so that's one of the ways. We've, so we've got to elevate the conversation. One of the, one of the uh, ideas that I have, is, as far as education is concerned, make everybody take a philosophy class again. Mm. Philosophy, when I was growing up, I had to take philosophy classes. I took two or three philosophy classes. By the way, I got a C plus in the first one, a D in the second, and I think a C minus in the third. It, it was a pretty wretched ex existence <laughs> uh, because they, we weren't, I wasn't ready to think. And so I think a lot of the young people, be partly because of the trend of helicopter parenting, gee, why do you pay $500,000 so somebody, so, so your kid can go to UC, USC? That's called, <laughs> oh, hel here go. That's called helicopter parenting. Yeah. <laughs> and the kids got to make the mistakes. My dad trusted me. I made my mistakes. Got a PhD in philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> so so if, you, if you require a philosophy course, then what you're going to have is, first off, employed philosophers, which pleases me. And another thing you're going to have is young people who have to encounter ideas that are not their own, that they have to listen to politely, and then they have to attack politely and civilly if they don't agree with it. We start with the conclusion of an argument, disagree with it, and that they think that's an argument. That's not an argument. That's a disagreement. Now go out and do your research. And so if you have a philosophy class where, and, and you two have experienced it really nicely because students, they have different ideas. Gosh, they're human beings. And you'll see them arguing, and, and as long as we didn't call each other names, we were all good. And the classes were really wonderful. I mean, they were wonderful. My, my experience at Butler was great. Mm. On the other hand, you have uh, people at Harvard who gave $150,000 to the, to the um, well, Kerry campaign and $6,000 to Bush. And so you have an imbalance on campuses, and you're getting on a lot of ideas where a conversation is not part of it. That's one reason. Here's another reason. Technology is not a, not a good thing always. Uh, so you can go, you can drive, Colin and Tim. Tim, you could, I invite you to do this, actually, because it's a great country. Because uh, <laughs> I went to Washington State. Drive from here to Washington State, and then drive back and tell me what you see, and tell me what you heard on the radio. When I was growing up, I heard whatever somebody else played for me. I was stuck with diversity. But you can go from here to there and never listen to anything but what you want. Yeah. 
True. Yeah. And now you get world. back. Yeah. Now you get back to your <laughs> campus, and you're going to listen to only what you want. And that conservative speaker or that liberal speaker, you don't have to listen to them. You can shut them down. And so I, I think technology has not been kind to us in terms of um, having the experience of diversity. And by now you've figured it out. My experience is probably about as weird or diverse or whatever word you want to use. It was a different one, very, very different. Um, but I think those are some of the things that I do to sort of check some of the technology, try to do more face-to-face. -face. Um, when Butler and companies are doing it, Butler, the employer, said, well, if, if you want one of your special needs students, students with special needs, to take this test, email it to me email it to this office. I said, well, why are you doing that? So I want to drop, I, I will drop you off a paper copy. He said, no, just send it over by email. We have to sit, we have to have it by email so we have a record of it in the, mm. so, so what does that mean? That means the five or six people in, uh, in the uh, office there don't see my face and I don't see their face. And we don't talk about the weather. We don't talk about the latest basketball victory or loss last season. <laughs> and so well, we, we avoid FaceTime, and it's not a good thing. We need, we need FaceTime, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that are on my mind. Okay. Uh, I like those. Can I play devil's advocate real quick? I wish you would. Okay, so... No, you can't say anything <laughs> that disagrees with me. <laughs> Welcome to I'm 2019. Very, very polite and ask. Yeah, yeah. What do you think this is, Villanova? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to bring up Villanova. So we, we incorporate the, the philosophy class. Yeah. Uh, what happens when those students start to, maybe in one class, they're heavy leaning one way or the other and they don't like something that was brought up. Now they rate that professor. What if they have enough of those where that professor gets removed? We've yeah, seen well, people being able to be blocked from campuses or let alone needing security on campuses because of certain beliefs yeah. on, on either yeah. side. Yeah. Uh, so how do we still incorporate the, the dissent in the conversation to challenge both sides of the argument to do our homework and be more educated without losing those who are trying to facilitate that even if it's done appropriately. Yeah, you gotta keep the professors. You gotta keep the professors. The professor's gotta have a pedagogical uh, explanation of rationale for doing what he or she does. Okay. And then what you've gotta do is you've gotta defend that professor. Okay. And I, I, I think sometimes administrators, by the way, there are more administrators on several campuses across the country than there are teachers. There's okay. more staff and administrators than there are teachers, uh, either Michigan or Michigan State, for instance. Okay. And uh, so, you, so the administrators have to be strong. They've got to have some backbone, and they've got to they've got to defend the pedagogy. If the pedagogy is defendable, then the administrators have to support the teacher. And then it's up to other things. So you don't have to have a teacher that's well loved. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it would be nice if they were well-respected, but they're not going to be because if the idea and the person are congruent, then you're going to have both the idea and the professor being assailed or, or ridiculed. Uh, but the administrators have got to have got to defend. And then the professor, of course, can say anything he or she wants if the professor writes an important book and has several important articles, too. Mm. But, I mean, I, I hate that kind of thing because you know, mm. then you're giving privilege to the scholar, not the teacher. Mm. Uh, what you really want to do is you want to have 
and, and I did this in class. That's why I came in with data. Every time I made something, made an announcement, I explained why I was doing it, and this was the reason. And if you can show me I'm wrong, fine, I'll thank you. That's mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Uh, but you have to approach the Thomas Aquinas. I'm, I'm sorry I don't have the quotation handy, although I could probably find it in one minute. <laughs> yeah. We can have air time, dead time for a minute. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said, when two people argue, they, they have to love each other because they both want the other to have a share of the truth. And so that other person is helping you. Mm. Huh. That other person is, but, but that's only if there's an argument and not a shouting match. The only way Barbara can help me uh, drive less aggressively is by not yelling at me, but by, but by talking to me. And, and, and we do that gently. Yeah. And one of the... One of the things that, that would produce domestic violence is <clears throat> when two people are arguing, have them sit down, but make sure they sit across the table. Then they'll have much more civility, right? Because it's, it's easy to stand up and shout and raise a fist and so on. But if, if you can just realize that the other person wants you to have a greater share of the truth, then you can keep on asking why questions. And actually, you know what? Sometimes opinions change. Who knew? Even at my age. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. But it, and it can happen with trauma, too. Get knocked off a horse like St. Paul. But, uh, but in philosophy, we do it with reasoned discussion. That's why I love Plato so much. Dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Yeah. And no shouting. But of course, it broke down. Socrates was put to death. State ordered suicide. So the argument broke down. Power took over. There was no right or wrong. There was only power. There is no right or wrong. There is no good or bad. There's only power. Who was I just quoting? Put me on the spot here. Yeah, I know. I know. It's tough. It's tough. I, I can't. I'm going to go Aristotle on it. Nope. Voldemort. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Right? I'm, a, I'm a dork for Harry Potter, too. I should know better. No, no, I should know I'm, better. I'm interested in the, in the seams that connect culture and high, uh, high thought, intellectual thought. And so, the, so, the, so you could, Aristotle probably did say that, as a matter of fact. But I use different words. I mean, I was quoting literally from the very first book, um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. Because she, and that's why the books have such resonating power, because she's dealing with that issue. We're living in a period of time where there doesn't seem to be a standard of right and wrong. And so the response if there's no right or wrong is power. Now, speaking nationally, I'm really glad we live in America. We're, we're the most heavily armed country, okay? Mm -hmm. But speaking on an individual basis, isn't there, isn't there another way? And so what you do is you sit down and you negotiate and you talk and you just keep trying to work things out. And if you're Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, you'll crack jokes and have a cigar. And, and at the end, you'll say, well, you know, I still think you're wrong, Tip. And Tip O'Neill said, yeah, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and that's, that's the whole of it. Yeah. And there's no resentment. That's Humphrey, uh, Hubert Humphrey, who ran in 68, same thing. The Happy Warrior. That was his nickname, The Happy Warrior. And so that's 68 as we started moving in. We had a choice of following Martin Luther King Jr. in race relations, for instance, or Malcolm X. And Martin Luther King Jr. counseled us not to drink from the bitter cup of hatred. And I'm a Martin Luther King Jr. fan. Not yeah. that I always act like it. I'm not perfect. You know, I know that. But I try to keep that in front of me. I try to keep that in front of me. Uh, same thing for the women's movement. You had Betty Friedan who argued that men should take more care of their children. 
And I still argue, I don't know if I gave you one of those articles to read, but the, but the, the parenting has got to shift. I dropped out to raise the boys, and I'm telling you. I know what it's like to be a father in this country with all those barriers in front of you. Going to a classroom and <laughs> watching your son perform a terrible Thanksgiving play. I mean, it's so funny. <laughs> so you got, the, you got the pilgrims there, you got the Indians, you know, and the turkey falls off the table and maybe yeah. an Indian picks it up at the same time as a pilgrim does and they, their hats fall off and now things are on the floor and they're scurrying around their friends want to help them. And anyway, the, it got done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was pretty funny. It was great. And then, the, and then the teacher thanked all the mothers for being there for their children. Hmm. What am I, chopped liver? Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, where's my thing? <laughs> so we've got to we've got to do that differently. I mean, it's got to we've got to do that differently. And and the women's movement started there. And with my first child, I did with one what my father could not do with eight. When Cassidy was born, I was there, and that's the women's movement that allowed that to happen. So I'm a real fan, but I'm a Betty mm. Friedan fan and a Carolyn Bird. I'm not a Shulamith Firestone radical feminist like Barbara McKinnon either. I'm, I'm just Catherine McKinnon. Anyway, her last name is McKinnon. I'm just not there. I'm just not there. And so we've, we've chosen the path of anger. And part of it is because the protests worked. You know, all the people in the streets, a lot of that worked. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you, mean you just can't shoot protesters, so what do you do with them? And, and so on and so forth. And so there were some effective gains and compromises, but uh, it's got. We've got to go back to conversation, but you know, it's a lot of what our our class our class experience together with you two and everybody else. Yeah, so mm -hmm. there's so much about. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted to ask you go, going like back to Slager's question: the role of the philosophy professor. Do you think that? a philosophy professor plays a different role as a professor than a different professor who's maybe teaching like math? Like, do you think that the philosopher has a more special responsibility to facilitate, facilitate that type of discussion in a philosophy class? I want to get your opinion on that. Well, I actually think that the math, the math professor has a, has a very important role to play with mathematical concepts. Because when you get to those high levels, it, it's, it's really unclear. You guys have studied economics. So you know that there's a lot of different economic theories there, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So what, do you shout at each other because you disagree about economic theory? <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, because you right? can carry over to any other, yeah. I mean, so you do it with economics. Mm -hmm. Scientists don't know why dinosaurs are extinct, although they think, pretty sure that there's a considered opinion about uh, a meteorite hitting and then blocking out the sun and uh, the temperature change and the climatic shifts. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the... the some people say that the magnetic pole that runs through the Earth shifted, and that's what produced that, too. And so they, they have these debates. In business, Lilly had a big investment in Alzheimer's in terms of plaque. There was, an ex there was experiments. They were thinking, well, maybe the plaque buildup, you know, that sort of glue, the, uh, the proteins all tangled up, maybe that was helpful. Maybe that was designed to counteract the impact of something else. And so they were trying to work on drugs so they didn't know that, but they didn't, they didn't no fisticuffs. And so uh, philosophy is a little bit different. It, it's really hard because you've got to make, you've got, you've got to make, you've got to make the situation, the environment of the classroom, welcoming and comfortable. Because with philosophy, identity is at stake. 
That's the very mm. thing we start, you, you, you were talking about. Yeah. Identity is at stake. If I go into a debate and I think X, and somebody else thinks Y, and somebody else thinks Z, and however many letters you might want to throw into the mix, and one of them convinces me that X is wrong, I walk out of that conversation a different person. Mm. And change is scary. Huh. And how, wow. is, how is it? So, so Socrates argues. He knows he's taking a risk. And that's why Socrates, is, I don't want to say the perfect representation, but he's one who challenges people to think. And when he challenges them to think, society might shift. And that causes uncertainty. And sometimes one of the responses, if you don't cope, if you don't cope well, if you resist, then one of the responses is anger and emotional outburst. So you maybe punch the person, or you shoot the person, or you. But philosophy will shift who you are. And if you're comfortable with who you are, you don't want to shift. And Lord knows I knew that. <laughs> That's why I was such a lousy student. <laughs> I wasn't going to shift. Yeah. I had teachers, <laughs> I remember pounding the table a few times when I was talking with my friends in philosophy, and I wasn't going to shift. I mean, this, these were my ideas, this is, and, and change is uncomfortable. But if you find people, you need good teachers, you need good mentors, and I had good mentors, so I'm so thankful. I am blessed. People like Dr. Rob and uh, Hartshorn, Charles Hartshorn, all the way back as an undergrad, and Harry Silverstein as a, as a master's student at Washington State. And several, they just, they helped me through. They helped me through like a midwife. And the, that famous platonic image of, of uh, Socrates as a midwife, he thinks of himself as a midwife, to go from here to there. Because I'll tell you something. You have a kid, and you're somebody else. You are something new. Your identity has changed if you take having children seriously. So, you know, when Barbara and I had our first one, we became different people. I mean, I mean, that's why having children is a big risk. You become a different person. Mm -hmm. And that's why philosophy is a risk. It's the same thing. And we face it daily. And as one researcher from, from um, Harvard put it, uh, and it's in a book, it's a reiterated choice between courage and despair. And if you're courageous, you will try the things that you're not necessarily comfortable with. And some do it by and large, unbidden, in other words, without too much impetus. My brother Bill was great. I mean, he was really terrific. He'd see something, he'd try it. He knew he might get hurt. He would, he, but physically, he would just try it. He would say, oh, <laughs> I, was, I was such a coward with that stuff in, in some ways. I just so lacked the courage, you know, oh, riding a bike, oh, this is so hard. I'm not going to do it. And so, uh, but with ideas, I'm a, I'm a different person. You know, with ideas, I'll try them all out. And I'll look to see which ones make sense and which ones don't make sense. But you're asking young people to try out ideas at a real crucial time of their lives. Wow. Mm. So, I think Mark Twain summed it up. You know, when I was 19, I couldn't believe how stupid my father was. When I was 24, I couldn't believe how much he learned in five years. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's a recurrent theme in human history. I, I joke with people like, you know, I'm finally at the age where I realized my parents were like 99% right. I'm going to hang on to that 1% still. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they're wrong. They're, and, 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 and if they're good, they, they admit they're wrong too. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah. We've taught blessed with good parents. Yeah. 
my kids have convinced me to do other things, convinced me to drive differently, interestingly. Mm. Not, not, not with regard to aggression, so I'm, I'm still problematic. <laughs> Uh, but We're I'm, all going to hang on to that side for a while. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> New Yorker. Uh, but uh, but I am a much different. I'm certainly way more patient than I used mm-hmm. to be. I will tell you that. And so the person who cuts me off, I say, ah, especially during Lent, right? Mm-hmm. Should be more forgiving. They said, well, you take that Lenten idea and you bring it forward everywhere. And for those of you who are not Christian related, well, well Ramadan, you know, you, you, you do... Right, and so whatever it is, I mean, it's about religion's about becoming a better self, hmm. and ill will—that famous ill will of, of Buddhism, you know. You, 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 and the Irish are full of ill will. I mean, they still have it in for the British. <laughs> you, know, you just you, you just hate your enemy, and you you, you want to hurt him. You want so I'm going to drink this poison and expect him to die. Well, no, uh, <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> right. And so ill will will kill the person, and so you, you and it's hard. It's really hard because we're human beings. Yeah. It's like, like you just were referring to, that ill will doesn't really affect that other person. Right. It doesn't. They, they Five might minutes be, and it's, you're right. They might be the happiest person alive and you're just bitter, like, ah, oh, they need to die. <laughs> yeah. They're happy. Maybe they get a family and you're still bitter and you're bitter yeah. and you hang on to that. Like, I've been through an angry phase in life and it, it's exhausting. Yeah, it takes, it takes energy. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's frustrating. And ethics is about being other regarding. Yes, we should be self-regarding, but it's about being other regarding. I mean, we should be past the stage of self, self-regarding behavior and only self-regarding behavior. Even though it's hard, we see a lot of, a lot of media attention yeah. paid to those. And, you know, if you do enough of it, sometimes you get elected president. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now. Well played. <laughs> well played. <laughs> That's awesome. But. Played, I get. I, I go back to play. I have. I think there's a lot of wisdom in the past, and I don't see. I don't see that we're looking to the past enough for wisdom. Yeah. But things carry through. Who knew? Honesty still with us. It's a virtue. Gosh, who knew? Yeah. And uh, we do, we just don't look to the past. Plato said that you want to have as a leader, you want to have somebody who really doesn't care about power. Hmm. But of course, then they can't get elected. Wow. Right. You want to have somebody who doesn't care about power, but cares about the, the population, cares about the public, because then they will take care of the public instead of their self-interest. And the Republic is all about that. And in Book 9, it's an argument between the tyrant and the philosopher. And Plato says the tyrant, the one who can get whatever he wants, whatever he wants, the tyrant can get. And I use the word he because they, they lived through the period of time where there were the 30 tyrants. Um, and, and that person is just a self-regarding, very overtly self-regarding representative of power. That's the wor- absolute worst thing you can get. And that was our choice in the last election, federal election. Mm-hmm. Right? Two self-regarding people. Yeah. And the populace apparently went for the one they didn't know than the one they did know. I'm not sure the populace is happy. Yeah. Although I will say, dump Trump is not a policy. Right. You know, as much as I, I think, it's, and I, I prefer character over policy. Mm-hmm. Because from good, good character, good policy flows. Because you want to do good. You want to do good. And so from that start, it's likely good policy will be produced. Um, but you also want to have good policy. But good policy can be fixed, as Thomas Aquinas observed <coughs> all the way back in 1270. Mm-hmm. You know, the, one of the thing about reason is you go from the less perfect to the more perfect. 
And then you have in the common wheel, you have a way of, of fixing, fixing things when they don't work. I mean, that's, that's what reason does. So, but I sound like a philosopher. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that. <laughs> so, that's awesome. I don't want to apologize for that, but uh, you're getting it. You're getting it from me. I, I, um, emotion is important too, because because you can't live a full life without the affective aspect. You have to want to do good, and reason by itself can't always do that. Mm -hmm. So you have to want to do good. Yeah, and I, I think with this last election we didn't have good enough character on either side and it was yeah it's just man this is what we're down to of all the people in in this country yeah yeah, yeah but you have to want power yeah you see and yeah and uh, what's interesting one of the people i admire most was abraham lincoln and, and he he knew something about power and he wanted power but he also knew something about the public and he knew that the way to get power was to make sure that the public got what they should have Aristotle was all about human flourishing. We want to have a government where individuals can flourish, can do well, can grow and develop. And that's what I think Abraham Lincoln understood. And he also understood that he couldn't do everything in a hurry. And that's one thing we don't understand. I mean, he thought slavery was wrong when he got into office. He used to work on the slave boats. He hated it, he, if you read his writing. There is, um, but on the other hand, if you, you if you look at some of his writings, it's, oh, he sounds like he's ambiguous here. Mm. You know, it doesn't look like he's opposed to slavery. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm going to get rid of it, but it's it's got to be done in a way that it can get done. Sure. And and it got done not in the way that he wanted by dividing the country, but it got done. Yeah. yeah. So, Galileo, but just a little interesting historical note. It wasn't that Galileo said. The Earth is not the center of the universe. It's that he wanted to tell everybody right now before the church could prepare them. Mm. So the church wanted them to hear this radical idea, but they wanted to teach them to grow into the idea. And if you're unwilling to grow, of course, huh. then you have problems. Mm. And philosophy is all about ideas that would produce growth. If you think about a mountain, if you climb up a small mountain, you, you can see a lot. But if you climb up the next bigger mountain, you're going to have to go down a hill to go up the hill. Okay. And you can see a heck of a lot more. Yeah. But that's work. <laughs> yeah, is that word no one likes? <laughs> yeah, the laziness. Yeah, and it, it, it really does. It does. I mean, it does scare people. So, mm -hmm. so you've got to try to make the classroom a welcoming environment. Dr. Roberts real good at that. Father Teske, every time I got a, a publication at the beginning of my career, I always wrote to Father Teske with love and respect, or respect and love. I don't know which I ended with, but I probably began with love because he turned me into a scholar. He turned me into somebody I could, I could get in a book and extract it and get a published article out of it. And <laughs> he ran roughshod over me when I was getting my dissertation done at Marquette. And... He said, yeah, well, you know, you say Augustine says this, but where does he say that? And Dr. Rob would say, yeah, that's a really good understanding of Augustine. I know exactly what's going on. But he turned me into a scholar by forcing me into the original Latin so that I could document everything. And so when, when if you read my writing, and you've read several pieces of my writing, you know how 
deep I'm going to get into something before mm-hmm. I make a claim mm-hmm. or, or, or present an argument because uh, but, but I think it's fun mm-hmm. yeah so so you, you do pro- provide a lot of statistic and like yeah because yeah numbers don't always lie as much as the narrative might yeah, I, I, narrative counts, though. I mean, the story sure. of the Good Samaritan is a great story. And you can't teach ethics without story. So how many sure. stories have I thrown into the mix here? Oh, yeah. Right, I mean, because cause we learn through story. We learn both mm-hmm. intellectually and, and affectively. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And you want to have them integrated toward the good, you know, to use these abstract right. terms. And, and most of what I do in philosophy has been applied philosophy. In other words, I don't want, I don't want philosophy to be an abstraction. Uh, Cicero said that um, philosophia es ars vita, which means philosophy is the art of life. And, and Buddha said something along the lines of, if somebody gets hit by an, a poisoned arrow, it makes no sense to ask what the shaft of the arrow is made from. We need to figure out what that poison is, mm-hmm. because action is the key. You know, we want to act in the world in a good manner and be constructive. And so I'm less enamored of metaphysics as philosophy goes, and more enamored of ethics. Hmm. And ethics demands application. And that's why I always try to connect idea to the world, idea to the world. Uh, and that's what I've, I, if I've been halfway successful with my students, they'll, they'll be doing the same kind of thing. Sure. So, and, and I still, I enjoy that, so I still do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I haven't read, I mean, as much philosophy as you have, but I, I think there's a nice balance where you provide proof and then story as well yeah like it's it's a good balance of man that's so logical i really can't fight that you know it's yeah you you can but on on some things where it's like that's that yeah on 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 some things but I, i do like the balance where you have statistical proof but then social proof yeah i yeah i try to yeah i try to have the balance um if I'm going to talk about men being put upon, I better I better have something to say, <laughs> <laughs> and I better have some reason for saying that. Right. Um, and so, so I mean, and, we, and you can take a look at that. You can take so what what it is. You know, men die earlier than women. Men commit more suicide than women. Sixty um, percent of the unsheltered population of homeless is male. Hmm. I mean, there are real clear patterns out there. Um, but right now we're worrying about women, and, and in many ways we should worry about women. Fifty-eight percent of undergraduates in America are female, and so and and of course, as I said before, and we're going to lose our black males the most, right? And so you got to have reasons for saying the things you say, or, for instance, I wouldn't keep a job in academia, right? I mean, academic freedom. You better be able to justify everything you say. So getting back to the math teacher, if you remember, that was one of those jumping-off points. The math teacher is not expected to teach philosophy or to politicize, right? Because there's not a lot of expertise. Unless that math teacher has taken his time or her time and dealt with with ethical ideas. And I, for instance, my brother Matt, who's a chair of the uh, Department of Management at Bradley University's Business School, mm-hmm. he took a semester off a sabbatical and, and he worked with me. And he knows ethics pretty well. And and Bob Bennett at Butler, I mean, he he worked real hard at understanding ethics. Uh, they didn't do it for a lifetime. They don't have uh, my knowledge base, my educational base, uh, but they see what's going on. They see what's at stake. And, and if the math teacher does that and lays out the philosophical 
arguments completely, and again, it's got to be completely, then then I see no reason why not. But the, but the math teacher might be in trouble. You know, but the math, you know, because of academic freedom, protects your disciplinary. If your math teacher or your economics teacher says, this theory of economics is the best one, in my opinion, it's the best one, and, and you happen to disagree, that's a, I mean, that's a professional, he's treating you like a, he's respecting you. So you can argue, you should be able to argue with him. Mm -hmm. But that's his field. And so he's a professor, not a confessor. He professes, he, he defends truths. He doesn't confess truths like a penitent or a, or a religious person. He professes them. And so when you profess a truth, that means you've got to be open to argument. Mm -hmm. So we're still back to conversations that are gentle and nice and civil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I like what you said about connecting ideas in the classroom to the world because i because i'm sure i was going to ask you like what do you want your, your students to walk away with after taking your class boy i'm, I'm you know <laughs> <laughs> if i couldn't answer a question colin do you remember what i used to say what were you supposed to answer with is that if you never know the answer to a question you have to repeat these four words i usually go with I don't know, but I'll get back to you. That's not bad. That's a good answer. That's why I've never been able, I've, I've never had a question put to me in the last 30 years where I couldn't answer because I don't know is one of my answers. That's, that's <laughs> okay. excellent. I just stole one from your book is all. <laughs> yeah. Rights, justice, utility, and care. And so if you want to oh, balance out, I mean, if you want to go through a, a conversation, look, why do, we, why do I not put on the test, uh, murder is morally justifiable? Why don't I put that on? Uh, because it's dumb. It's a violation of rights, right? You're removing the right to life. It's unjust. You're placing a burden on somebody that's unjustly placed, that nobody deserves death. Uh, and, and if you're enjoying it, then you're getting a benefit that you don't deserve because you haven't earned it. It's, it's not utilitarian. Why? Because it doesn't serve the common good. If, if murder's going to wind up being one of those commonplace kinds of events, we're going to live in a society with distrust, mistrust, and lots of violence. So it violates the utilitarian principle. And finally, if you think about the notion of care where the bonds of community should be extended and where people should be treated as though they're important and possibly part of a relationship, a deepening one or a, or a lighter one, a less intense relationship, then what you have to do is you have to make sure the person continues to live because otherwise the relationship's over. So it violates care. This is this one's easy. This one's easy, hmm. and so you, we don't do easy in philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> and that's one of the problems with why philosophy courses are so problematic. Most, a lot of professors start with, with the with the questions that are hard. And and I like to start with questions that were easy, and so so I, so I would start with stealing. Why is stealing wrong? Well, it violates the person's right to property. Well, it's not just you're getting a benefit that you didn't deserve. Uh, if stealing was permissible, then everybody would live in a, with uncertainty. It's not utilitarian. And finally, it creates hardship and, and bad feeling. It, it's a violation of care. Pretty easy. What's the next one? You know, and we can do that all day on the commonplace. So, so if you start with the commonplace, you're not going to get real far. You, know, the, the, you can see we did it twice now. I wanted a third time for adultery. You know, we can do all of these things. It's not hard. And so what we have to do is we have to do the hard ones. But if you show the example of an easy one or two, mm -hmm. then what happens is say people can answer the question, yes, there are standards. There is good and wrong. 
power isn't the answer. There are standards. There are standards for truth, and there are standards for value judgments. Yeah. And, uh, and so what we have to do is try to find standards. Philosophers have settled, if you look at the business ethics textbooks, which I'm paid to do, you're not, uh, or I was, and uh, what you see is rights, justice, utility, and care showing up. There's gonna be usually three of, three of the four in every textbook. Velasquez, I think the single best textbook in America on business ethics, had th all four. And, and, and that's what you taught. And if the students have that in their head, well, I have to respect this person's rights. I have to make sure that I don't burden that person or that person doesn't burden me, because it's got to be self-regarding too. And if we try to make a world where that's happier, more conducive to people having happiness and pleasure, that's good, and if we strengthen relationships, that can only strengthen humanity. I mean, and that's that's what you want to do. You want to go through that stuff, and so you have these ways of measuring. And, and um, but in the same way that science has these questions that are unanswered, not, or un, I should not they're, un, they're answered. We just don't know which is the right one. Mm -hmm. uh, they're unresolved, and so philosophy is all about the unresolved. You know, and. Uh, Captain Kirk and Bold to go where no man has gone before. Actually, no now, these days, no person has gone before. Uh, but he, was, he would bold to go. Not everybody go boldly goes into that. And, uh, and the Villanova profs are in for it. <laughs> 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 because the students are, don't always believe the way you approach it and the way, Tim, you approach it. You know, the way you both approach things are yeah. different. Mm -hmm. Last time I forget rights, justice, utility, and care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go home and write it on your wall. Christine. No, I will. Yeah. That's Put on the mirror. It's a good thing to go yeah. by. But really, it's not. It, it, that's the easiest thing to do to use the rights, justice, utility, and care. There's a lot of other models out there, mm -hmm. but those are the conceptual models. And, and then what you want to try to do is you want to try to see what's best. There's a virtue model that's pretty good. You ask yourself, what kind of person do I want to be? You know, what kind of a person do I want to be? Do I want to want to be the kind of person? And that depends on a whole laundry list of values and it frequently takes a commitment to a certain kind of ideology you know although I, I you call it ideology but ideology could be defended when when uh, Tiger Woods was on the green I noticed the other day he used to putter every time mm -hmm. you know I mean he approached that green with a bias <laughs> he was biased toward putters <laughs> Bias, you know, there are such things as justified biases. And so what we want is invidious biases, biases that hurt without reason. Those are the things that we've got to go. Hmm. I mean, discrimination, when I was growing up, was a neutral word. And now it's become a negative word. But you want discrimination. So, And the only way you can have discrimination is if you're capable of making a judgment. And hmm. the only way you can do that, according to Plato, is if you have some sort of standards in place. So if you and you can't live a pleasurable life without knowing what's the most pleasurable, there's got to be a standard, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be a standard, and it's funny that everybody picks the same ones. You know, Aristotle, sex, money. You know, yeah, Aristotle said that in Nicomachean Ethics. I mean, and it's common. I mean, it's through history, right? Because human beings, gosh, haven't changed much <laughs> in some ways. Doesn't look like it. Yeah, amazing how we're all so connected. I mean, they have so much more in common. Yeah. So. Find the commonality instead of... Yeah, well, that's, that's what I've tried to do with my class. And on the other hand, 
Uh, I'm still from New York, and I have an attachment to New York, but that's just a value. That's just one of my choices. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't, doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't violate anybody's rights. It places no burden on anybody. I get, I get a benefit subjectively, but, it doesn't, but that's okay, as long as it doesn't burden somebody. Uh, from a utilitarian point of view, rooting for teams is neither here nor there. It probably helps. And uh, it doesn't destroy relationships. In fact, it creates relationships frequently because what happens is people rooting for the same team communicate more. I just got an email from my friend Steve who was at the Milwaukee Brewer game. I'm a Brewer fan, Milwaukee Brewer fan. It was the last team Hank Aaron played for, okay. a person of color who grew up as one of my heroes. Mm -hmm. right? And so that's what I grew up I grew up with people. You rooted for them because, not because of their skin color or this, that, or the other. You root for them because they were good people. Yeah. You know, Hank Aaron's a good person, and, um, and Mahatma Gandhi was a good person. And you root for them because they're good people. So you want good people, so you, but you got to have a way to make that judgment. Mm -hmm. And that's when the ver virtue um, model comes into play. Yes, that's what I'd like to be. You know, that's what I, I want to be. And you know what's interesting is I... You see young people, uh, and sometimes they're so full of positive energy, and they're, they're so outgoing and good-willed, and you say, gosh, where did that go in me? So it's the trait you're looking for, not the person. Mm -hmm. I've got a grandson, Sean. <laughs> He's just the nicest guy. He's all of five years old. Or did he turn six? I think he's five. He might be six. He's probably six. And he, he just wants to give things away to people. He's just as nice as, he just wants to be loved. He just wants to be a nice guy. That's what say, so where did that go in me? Yeah. You try to keep your generosity. You try to, you, so then what you do is you say, these are the traits that I admire in others. That's what I want in, my, in me. Yeah. So. It's a great way to look at it. Yeah. Follow the trait, not, not the actual person itself. So who, who so is there somebody you, you two admire? Tim, you want to lead off? I would first off, I mean, the very first person that comes to mind is probably my mom. I mean, she has a lot of, she's faced a lot of adversity in the last few years with just some deaths in the family, a lot of life changes. But she has always wanted, like, she's always been selfless with other people's happiness. She, she just want what makes her happy is making everybody else happy, which is a very admirable trait. And it's, it put things into perspective for me. So that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. I don't want to be the copycat with mom, but since I'm my mom's kid more than anyone, um, I mean, I do look up to my brother a lot. Uh, I look up to him. He He's super smart at what he does. He's, he's good at it, and he's recognizing that soon there needs to be a change because it's kind of run its course, and he's outgrowing it, yeah. per se. But uh, my mom, is she's an entrepreneur, too. She took a gamble on herself, left a, a cushy job, and because she wanted to do more for other people. She knew she was called to a higher power of this is not all I'm meant to do. It's not all I'm meant to do. And and I was in a job, Tim was in a job as well where we're like, is this it? Like we have, we have friends that we talk to, they're in this job or that job. Yeah, well, welcome to the next 40 years. I'll see you in retirement. Like that's how you're really looking at it. Like this is it. For you and you know fine to those if you, if you love what you do and you have no complaints awesome but it's just we knew we were meant to do something greater than what people expected us to do and, and I saw that and you know my dad did the same but I'm so much like my mom the empathy side like it's yeah. like yeah I'll, I'll call her like one day I'll just feel 
I need to talk to my mom today. And sure enough, she's having a terrible day that day. Like, hey, I'm glad you called. I, I was really needing, you know, I couldn't really talk to anyone today. I was one of those me days and everyone just kind of irritated me, but I need to talk to you and vice versa, where it's just, we know there's more and we're, we're here to serve and there's just more to do than clock in and clock out. As self-regarding automatons. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, I asked this, I asked this of uh, students. I did it of your class ages ago. I didn't keep any data, but I, then I started keeping data. 90% of the students at Butler said mom or dad. Wow. That's why I don't like diversity. If you stress diversity, you don't stress commonality. You can start with commonality. Say, if you're so diverse, if you grew up in such a diverse household, and you're so diverse that you think differently than others, how do 90% of the class pick the same? Because, by the way, you pick mine. Because my parents are the ones that I wanted to be like. I wanted to emulate them. So, and so, and, and, the, and, the, re and the reason that you said it was just exactly the reasons that I picked my mom and dad, too. You know, as my, the people I want to emulate, what I would call my heroes. So, Martin Luther King Jr., I admire a lot. Jesus, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Abe Lincoln. Yeah. I'm not a swarthy Hindu, all right? And so, I don't look like him. I didn't grow up like him, and so on and so forth. Uh, but he had the traits that are admirable, and morality seems, as you said, as you said, you observed, seems to... Yeah. Pretty sure you said that. Anyway. Well, so this has been this has been awesome, Doc. We've been going an hour and a half, if you can believe that. <laughs> uh, so uh, not that I want to stop, but I know we're also going to do some dinner as well. Uh, anything that Tim, either you or Doc, that you want to end on here? Uh, a send off for people, um, a last thought, maybe an advice to a younger self, uh, maybe a. Just look at something or think of something a little differently just to try it, to be a little uncomfortable, to see where the conversation may take you. Tim, do you want to go? Um, I would just, I mean, the que I mean, the question I would have for you is what advice would you have for someone going out into the world from, like, college into the real world? One thing that I've learned, I, I want you to answer that, something along those I'll lines. Answer, but, okay, I'll but answer yeah, so, something <laughs> with Something with mine is, like, we've talked about a little bit here is is always just be open to learning new information even if it doesn't coincide with what you preconceive or, yeah. or think about it any, like anything whether it's an opinion on something whether it's what you think you should do with your career I think it, you should always be, be looking to for, for spaces and opportunities to learn new things that can take you outside your comfort zone because it was a stretch for me going working in a desk job to working a job where I walk into 30 different businesses a day and meet different people like yeah that's a little different but like that's it went out of my comfort zone but it worked out well because just what i've been the people i've been able to meet so i, w I would just say educate yourself on new things that are going to put you outside your comfort zone i mean that's what i would say yeah. what i've learned but yeah and i never learned that until i i really learned that until i left college because college yeah. did me well but I, just, I had to go out there and fail and, and make true real-life mistakes before I learned something like that. So. You were, well, I was in luck then because I did that in college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I became something. Yeah. Uh, who, who knew that I would do that? I'd do so lousy as a student and wind up teaching students. 
Um, one of the things that I say to myself a lot is diligent. Uh, Deba was diligenter amare kisdem hominem et omnes homines, and that is, uh, we ought to love each person and love all people. And so, I, you, it was an interesting response because I'm twisting this around in my head. I'm thinking, hmm, he sounds a lot like me, um, which is not always a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, well. You can be a thinking person or a loving person. And I'm thinking, I'd rather be a loving person, but I'm, can you do that without thinking? So now I'm now, now you've twisted me up a little bit, you know, so now I'm doing a little bit. <laughs> I think, you, that. you no, that's all right. You, you, I think what you, your, your advice, uh, go, and, go and see things. And, uh, mm -hmm. I was always shy about that. I'm a little bit more brazen, a little bit more um, upfront about trying things I otherwise wouldn't. Um, the other thing I like, I, I try to think of, and that is gaudium in vita est. There is joy in life. Uh, because I sometimes we think we forget that there's joy in life. And so if you love people and you think that there's joy in life, then you'll be hopeful, helpful, and joyful. And that would be a good way to live. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I like that. There's any, I, I think one thing I've, I've learned very recently is, like, what's the desired outcome? Whether it's a conversation, an argument with your person, is your desired outcome for you to argue and then hate each other afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Or, or just understand why are you thinking that? And that's okay to ask that. Like, why are you thinking that way? Yeah. So, desired outcome. Mm -hmm. See, this is what I miss. <laughs> retirement. I'm, I'm missing this in retirement. Yeah. I'll tell you. You know, that's really good insight. That's well, really good insight. And it was well phrased insight, by the way. Thank you. Thank so, you. I would love for you to repeat it. Desired outcome. Uh, so I, I think what is the desired outcome, whether it's a conversation, an argument, um, is the desired outcome to go into a disagreement and hate the person or just understand why they're thinking differently than the way you are. Yeah, and it's okay to ask, why yeah. are you thinking that way? Yeah, It's okay to ask. Then use question form instead of statement form in those dissenting conversations because then yeah. you're not attacking. So. Doc, this has been well awesome. Said. This has been super fun. Uh, and fun for me. So I thank you. I thank you very welcome much on the for show trusting me. Anytime, absolutely. Oh, we trust you with a lot. So um, you, you helped us think the way we do now. So well, you helped shape us. Maybe the next time, if you wanted me to talk about things I know, 100%. We'll do baseball. Yeah, yeah, there we go. That's there a deal. Go. Good. That's a deal. Round on that two. one. All right. Doc, thank you so much again. Quite Real well, pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the listeners. Thanks for always tuning in. This is a fiery episode, so go back and re-listen. Um, and just thank you for your ear and your time. Until next time.